Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you Art Monthly's talk show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Although I have to say that it will be going on to DAB London Radio on the 15th of December, which is very exciting because that will mean that you won't have to only listen to it on FM if you wish to, which some people have in their cars. You'll also be able to listen to it on your DAB Radio. Well, I've got one of those and it is a bit clearer and I think you'll probably be able to get it wherever you are in London, which is not... When you've got a narrow band like 104.4, it's not always possible. So that's really good news. You can obviously listen to us also on the Art Monthly website. You can go back to our podcasts anytime and listen to all the programmes we've done ever. They're all there. Today, I'm in the studio with two writers from two different issues. And I also have another writer on the phone. And the writer on the phone is called Nathan Jones, and he's an independent curator. Hi, Nathan. Hi. And... um. In the studio with me is Beth Bramich, who's a writer based in London. And hello, Beth. Hello. And Paula Kane, who some of you may have heard before. He's definitely been on the programme before. The first two people had not been on before. And Paula Kane is an artist, writer and lecturer based in London. That is correct, Paul, isn't it? Absolutely correct. I'm sure there could be something else as well we could add to that list, but I won't. No, I can't think of one right now. Now, so first of all, we're going to talk with, to Nathan... Um, and he's on the phone, as you can hear. Uh, he's in Liverpool, am I right? Is that exactly where you are, Nathan? Yes, I am exactly in Liverpool, just across the road from uh, where the Assemble project happened, actually, the Turner Prize winners. Ah, well, I never did. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, um, you've written a piece called Glitch Poetics. Um, I'm, and it, we put a little subheading saying, Nathan Jones makes new sense from nonsense. Um which is kind of interesting in a way, because we've got the two pieces we've got on, I mean, as well as yours, Beth has reviewed a show at Focal Point, which is called Duh, Stupidity, and... Uh, no, Art of Stupidity, beg your pardon. And Paul's, um, well, I don't know, Paul, you're, you're not exactly dealing with stupidity, are you? But you are dealing with the twisting of a sort of standard norm to be in an unusual form that, yeah, but, that could be looked at as... Yeah, my article definitely deals with ideas of new new sense and new ver- sense, verging, yes. on, verging on nonsense. So we sort of do have links across the three pieces, which which we don't always get, and it's it's pretty coincidental, really. Although my editor of, of the magazine, Patricia, because I'm sure would argue with that completely and say it was all planned. <laughs> anyway, Nathan, um, just to get things going, um, my reading of your feature, which is uh, not uh, it's a it's a good one, it's a complicated one, and and I'm not knowledgeable of all the artists you're writing about, but can you give us a little summary of, of the overview piece, as it were, of what your piece is about, and then we can perhaps talk about some of the specific uh, artists and things that you, you mention within it? Yes, Thank yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in sort of observed, uh, observed this strain uh, or trend in uh, language-based artworks, poets and artists working with voice and film and language, uh, where they sort of expose the technological side of language. Um, no, just, we... Okay, I'm going to stop you there for a second. When you say yeah. te- technological side of language, yeah, what, what does that mean? Well, I really think at the moment there's um, a very distinctive uh, environment in which language takes place when we speak, when we write, uh, that we're kind of speaking for, with and through technology. And it's the first time really ever that there's been a, a sort of non-human which understands language. And I really think that that is um, a, a sort of seismic shift really in what language is and uh, a big shift in terms of, as a writer, the kind of territory that you're writing from. Um, and it's certainly the first time that you could a writer might be said to be using a tool which would... Uh, understand the language that you're writing in or the way that you're writing so i kind of take that as the basis and some people call that the post-human because um it sort of signifies a kind of crisis in human if the human's defined by an animal which has a language um then something else having language is obviously sort of has a bit of a crisis moment for um for the human. And then so I sort of start from that point, what um, the post-human as a concept, and then think about how different artists 
are kind of creating these um, slightly incoherent or problematic uh, artworks with language that kind of reveal or have, have these technological edges to them. So they, they literally physically take the technology and say if they're doing a performance, use it physically and we would be sitting in the audience watching them use it and then it would affect what they what they do? In some cases, definitely, yeah. Um, like uh, The example that I really like to use and I, that I start with the article with uh, is the work of Caroline Bergvall, who um, not explicitly, she almost sets the... Um, sets the groundwork for this kind of glitch poetics practice uh, with her work about faith, which um, almost proposes the face itself as a, a prosthesis or a technology that's involved in the act of speaking. She does that by uh, re-recording and then re-performing a performance that she does um, in New York, I think, where she has a bad tooth. So she's trying to speak this poem, this text, um, but she kind of can't really articulate it because of this pain she's feeling. So the poem and the articulation actually becomes kind of marked and cut into by the by pain uh, and by the face itself as some kind of technique or technology that's, um, you know, is we think of usually as just part of ourselves and part of the fluency of the way we operate. So Caroline Bergvall's work um, obviously uses technology and they re-record something uh, and she uses that re-recording to listen and notate and reproduce a version of her like stammered utterances. Uh, but then someone like Erica Scorti, um, who, as you say, she's, she's on stage with a piece of technology writing through it and sort of drawing attention to the kind of the just the the schism or the moment of uh, incompatibility or incoherence between what a technology might say, what a technology is capable of saying or understanding, and what a human might say. It's um, it's, it's definitely using the the kind of technology that is everyday technology. Though we're not talking about technology, from what I understand, that is. Um, high technology, you know, which most people wouldn't know how to use. It is actually day-to-day -day predictor text on your phone kind of technology. Is, is that all? Is it, is it all at that kind of level, this technology that these artists are dealing with? Um, I wouldn't say it's all at, at that kind of level. I think particularly uh, Erica Scorsi, like her work, um, just to, like clarify for listeners the way that she... Um, produces what I would call a glitch poetics. Um, I'm not sure whether she would sort of um, agree with that term uh, as glitch has kind of got its own associations within uh, visual art practice. Um, but she she uses the uh, predictive text function in her phone and by connecting it up to her blog and email records, she sort of allows um, the algorithm into her inner life uh, and then just as the the performance is her just performing the predictive text, going where that takes her. And one of the stylistic things that that brings up that's kind of quite funny at moments is that uh, the computer never wants to finish a sentence. So it will always take every single word as a kind of urging on uh, into a new tra trajectory for the sentence. So um, although people sometimes think of like error uh, as a fragmentary thing, uh, I think what we find with Scorsese's work um, and this kind of our relationship with uh, technology like predictive text is that maybe it has more to do with streams and like a fluid flowing um, continuity, which is kind of at odds with the way that we experience language and the way that we might use it in a normal, what we call, might call a normal way. I mean, you do but mention then, you mention nonsense at, at one point. I mean, th th this text that she was rereading out, would it make no sense to the listener? I think, yeah, I think it uh, flickers really interestingly between making sense um, moment to moment, because obviously the, the way the algorithm does its thing is by 
you know, trying to form a meaningful connection to the word that's just gone before. So there's moments of coherence for sure. Uh, and there's definitely a general feeling of uh, Erica saying something. But because there's no uh, end of a sentence in which like that's, that sense would be completed um, and no moment, therefore, that you could kind of uh, think of something as a unit of sense, you instead just are faced with a continual just-about-to-make-sense um, in her work, I think, which is kind of exciting, exhilarating and funny and a bit uh, unsettling, almost like a politician talking on morning radio where they're sort of taking up or occupying the space of speaking and seem to be uh, talking some sense, but come away uh, and they said nothing. Can, can I just read a little bit out um, that you, uh, yeah, you quote? Cool. I mean, tell me, I think I've got the right one. It says, you just want me to want me to make more, more content, content intimate relationships in childhood, in childhood reproduce, reproduce social media marketing. As you said, that's like a flow, isn't it? Where, yeah. where one thing does connect to the next, but it's not, it's not sense as in why is it suddenly going from, you know, intimate, why is it, where, where does intimate relationships come from, for instance? I mean, it seems to pop up. Well, presumably that's to do with her personal, this thing you talked about where predictor text kind of knows what you've typed before. Yeah. And, it, and that, is that how you mean by the, the, like, like the intimate personal element? Because it's yeah, her that's... phone and it's her, she's what she's, it is based on what she's written before at some point. Yeah, that's it. And I think uh, with the way the, the way the glitch happens in that example you just gave is that um, it says, you want me to make more content. Um, and, but the word content also is um, content. Yeah, of course. So cont a, a content, intimate relationship. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't recognise the difference. No, that's Necessarily, it, yeah. between the two. Or yeah, the trigger exactly. is content, content. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, this kind of like, so it's almost like the the apparatus, the te technological apparatus there is like performing a little pun or a wordplay, which we wouldn't normally think of as a glitch, but w in the context of technology, it's really revealing something about the way the technology works and the kind of little biases that sort of drive uh, the way that we speak and the manner in which we share our intimate relationships you know in the contemporary sphere really can i come in with a... this is this is paul nathan hi nathan hi paul hi um i just had a question it was kind of there's a couple of things running through my mind while we, while you were speaking um one of them is um i enjoy running a, a seminar at saint martin's college uh, it's called technologies of romance and uh, it's a way of trying to get the students to sort of relativize contemporary technology and see it in a wider history of technologies and the interplay of the history of technology and art. And um, so when you were speaking, I was kind of... I, I, I think your article was really uh, appropriate and, and fascinating uh, for that field, and uh, I encourage my students to, to read it. Um, but the, the, the question I suppose I have then is something to do with this relativization of technologies. And uh, I was thinking of some examples like Tristan Zara's uh, you know, uh, way of making a poem by cutting up uh, a newspaper and uh, scrambling the elements and then picking them out one at a time. And it strikes me that you know the the newspaper is a is a technology. You know the type has this kind of history of technology. The scissors and the glue are all kind of technologies um, producing what you know Zara kind of aimed to produce a sort of a nonsense, a new twentieth century nonsensical poem, maybe as a response to the First World War or whatever. But I just wonder what you think about uh, is, is it possible for us to. Uh, to um, kind of uh, rather than rather than see new technologies as a rupture with the past, uh, rather see kind of continuities and a sort of sense of evolution rather than revolution in in contemporary technology and its relationship to, in this case, poetry. Yes, definitely, and I think um, poets in particular have played a really important role in drawing attention always to the, the way these technologies are evolving and the way that they're 
they're just their subtle biases about the way that we think about language and the way that we use it kind of are there. So someone like Tristan Zara or William Burroughs with that cut-up method, I think one of the things that um, those cut-up methods showed was the newspaper like itself is, as you say, a technology, but as it itself is a cut-up as well. You know, mm-hmm. after all, it's in columns anyway, and like the way that words are arranged, particularly, um, you know, in you know many years ago when uh, Zara was was working, that small typefaces and the way the words are all crammed up together. There is this sense of this kind of new linkages and mm. sort of um, like a mesh of meaning already starting to come through those, as you call them, the technology of. Um, I remember from the days. This is Matt. I remember from the days when newspapers were actually made by people who put the lead into the bits of wood, you know, and then and it was all handmade. That, that you used to get these amazing mistakes sometimes. You know, spacing spacing between things was all often wrong, and because it was actually hand done, which is funny because it kind of like looked like it was technologically separate from man because it looked print. You know, and it was it was mass mass reproduction, but it had actually been made by hand in the first place, and obviously yeah. and, and written by somebody individual before that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there is there is a kind of circular thing, isn't there, going on a bit? Well, there's, there's yeah, a, absolutely. It, yeah. It's I think that um, that point of just like. There, it was only at the moment of error uh, that you noticed that there was a human hand involved. Yes, in yeah. there's, al- there's also an interesting. Um, there's also yeah, some interesting play to be drawn out here of a whole history of poetry and a whole history of technology. You know, maybe we'd have to go back to the Egyptians or something to invent writing or something. But uh, but in that com- in that comparison you just made, you you have a sense of. Uh, uh, poetics in a way the Guardian used to be famous for its errors its yeah, mistakes the Groniad. but there's a kind of poetics or a comedy that comes out of those moments those moments of error but it could be a kind of accidental beauty as well which I presume but, is what these artists are interested in as well I mean I, I, is that right there's an aesthetic question in there we could discuss I, do you, I mean do you think they are Nathan I mean are they they are being I mean, yeah, I mean as an because I haven't experienced the performance for instance but I mean Presumably, there is something they're after getting out of this, which is more than the the actual substance of the of the thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think that moment of like effective um, or sort of emotive kind of surprise that you can feel with um, you know what I would call a glitch or an, an error. Um, in you know that it it produces something that is new and wasn't planned. Yeah. And how this, you, you know, it sets you in a surprising relationship to the work, to the the artist, to the artist and their technology that they're using to you, you know, so it sets up and opens up kind of uh, just a little glimpse at this kind of mesh of relations that the the work's involved in. And I think that that is like one of the most exciting sort of moments with these kinds of works, for sure. No, you mentioned other artists. It might be quite interesting just to hear a little bit more about. I mean, you talk about net artist Mez Breeze um, as well. Yeah. What 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 do what do they do? Um, Mez Breeze um, maybe is the most um, sort of recognisably glitch poetics artist that I, that I mentioned. In that her uh, way of writing is a composite of. Um, code language, so algorithm, like the, a written piece of code, and a poem. And she distributed these uh, these texts kind of through uh, listserv, email listservs. And they're really striking and very surprising. And uh, they just sort of fail to emerge as a coherent sort of uh, sentence or phrase. But in in place of this kind of failure to emerge as either a program or an algorithm or a poem, they open up this kind of um, multiple possibilities and multiple punnings with the, uh, that are there within a word. Um, so they they kind of stop you from reading them, uh, you know. And in place of that sort of stopping or stammering or hesitating, you're kind of noticing all the little inferences that are actually available within each word. She calls it, is it mesangel or gel? Is that the one? Mesangel. 
Mesangel. Yeah. Mesangel. Is it, can I can I again? Can I just read a little bit out? I think I think I found one. I don't know. Can you? Well, I don't, I don't, probably not. <laughs> well, it is actually because it says echo, and then there's a bracket, and then a Y. So echoey is what you want to read. But as there's a bracket there, I don't know whether to how to space that. But echoey lingers in mobile tongues. Bravo, G, glued, gore. No, you're right. You can't read it really because it's 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 impossible to say glued, really, because it's the, the L is in brackets. So I don't know how I'm supposed to say it. Yeah, the glitch is in my head. I think as I try and read it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's you know definitely problematizes kind of how you might sort of use language, but because of this kind of codiness of it, it kind of reveals that all these ways that or like infers some kind of ways that maybe technology is like unpacking things that we're saying in different ways that we might uh, understand or unpack the way things are saying. So it is really like very much a kind of post-human writing in that there's it's neither and both understandable and runnable by humans and computers, but just like at that kind of horizon of both. Uh, and it feels exciting to read. I think it's not going to come across on the radio, but people should really look up Mez's work. Um, yeah, presumably you can do that on the internet easily. Well, very much so. Yeah. Good, yeah, yeah. So. And I know you mentioned other people as well. But listen, Nathan, I think we'll probably yeah. move on to talk to Beth about her review of Focal Point. And um, you're welcome to stay on if you'd like to stay on um, or, or fade away as you wish. Because you're, you're on the, you're on the phone. It's... While I'm listening. Yeah, okay, yeah. mate, cool. And if you say, if you've got, if you've got... yeah, you're welcome to. It'd be nice. If you feel like it, it'd be great. I hope your, your brain isn't fried from your mobile, that's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> this exhibition, this uh, Durr, sounds fantastic. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Okay, well, that's what we're going to talk about now. And, and Beth, you went to see that um, on a free train, which they run down to Focal Point, which is in Essex, east, deep East England, I guess you'd say, South End. And, um, that's quite a clever thing to do, a gallery to get, well, to get their audience to go somewhere like from London to, to a South End is not easy, but the fact that you go free it does help a bit. Yeah, um, so I start my review mentioning the fact that you go on the free train because as we arrived, we were a massive crowd. It felt like almost the whole of London art scene was on the train and Great. we were heading one way. So obviously, if there'd been an incident, it would have been, been terrible, a disaster, <laughs> or for more all work of us. for me. <laughs> Um, but the way that we arrived was actually very effective for the first work that you encounter. As you approached the, uh, the gallery, there was a large queue forming of all these people and you assumed that it was going to take a long time to get in. This is a new space, isn't it, by the way? The Focal Point moved, didn't it? I went to it before, but it used to be in the library. And then so they, they it, built a new building, is that right? There's a new building, so it's still part of the library, but it's this very shiny new space. They've got a um, really fantastic amount of window display space so they can put works... Um, into this forum, which is a public space. Lots of students from the University of Essex walk through all the time. Gotcha. OK, sorry, I interrupted you there. But you arrived and there's a lot of people getting in your way. Yeah, so they're blocking all these shiny displays. It's very hard to see how we're going to get into this show and we're moving slowly through this queue. And I talk about how um, I develop a bit of impatience and frustration, despite the free train, the complimentary uh, <laughs> luxury of getting down there as a big crowd. Um, and this, it turns out, this delay is part of an ex uh, part of the first work of the exhibition, right. in my experience, which is um, a piece by Annika Strom, which has been um, reiterated several times. But obviously, as you encounter it, you've got no idea you're about to. No. Um, and this is uh, seven women standing in the way. And uh, as it happened, there's a um, kind of a circular entrance to the space, and there's a perfect space for a gaggle of anybody yeah. to gather and block. Very I wonder why it's women. <laughs> In a way, I think it's very that, interesting that it's women. I say, do you think that made a difference to the gender of them? I mean, yeah. do you think people were being more polite or less polite to them because they were? Or what, I don't know what I wonder what age they were and what they were. I imagine lots of women in twin sets and handbags, but I'm sure they weren't. I mean, it was effective because of their age. It's, it's a, specifically a group of middle-aged to um, slightly older women. I think there is an, an amount of respect that you show. Right. Uh, there's a kind of politeness, a, a sense that we have to behave. Um, kindly because these women must not realise what they're doing, how inconvenient they're, they're, the inconvenience they're causing to this crowd of important art people who've come from London <laughs> to see the show in a way um, and they are, they don't look as if they've got any official capacity they're dressed 
in a way that they would be to on a night out. I mean, I'm also from Essex and I recognise seven Essex women on a night out. Uh. Uh, not in a kind of club way, but, you know, they've dressed up. Yeah. And they're, there, and they're having a lovely conversation with each other. And that's part of the work, I think. It's that these people aren't being prompted. There's no script. They are talking because they know each other. They're happy to see each other and they're arriving together. And it's really effective because of this. It seems like a completely natural I situation. I they must have been actors, actually. I don't think so. Do you think they were just got I, and they understood what they were doing and I, did it? I think so. That's I think, great. I think if you ask a group of people who know each other well to chat for that amount of time... And, and just stand there. And stand there and say it's going to be quite funny. But not, not to look at the visitors arriving from London, because you said they didn't actually catch your eye, did they? You sort of... They sort of... Well, that's, that's quite... That's not easy. Anyway, sorry, you, you proceed through them. You say, I wriggle... <laughs> between them yeah there was a amount of wriggling it was a particularly difficult physical physical situation to maneuver yeah. and i liked watching once i'd become part of the joke and realized what happened and had that experience of being having revealed to me how stupid i can be in trying to be polite and intelligent and civilized yeah. um, i was able to watch how other people navigated this awkward situation yeah it does make me think it's a bit of a glitch really I mean, it's a, it's a performance that's causing a glitch, isn't it? So yeah. it's, it's not unconnected, actually, to, to Nathan's piece in that sense. Yeah, there's an element of nonsense it's, to it's it. It's social glitch. Social glitching, yeah. Yes. So that was the introduction to the exhibition, and um, that performance was specifically arranged and I think really effective on the opening night because of that crowd. Um, but also, I think it's embodied in other works. There's the way that you are able to um, be provoked or tricked or encounter stupidity and experience it and have that experience um, of the difference between intelligence and stupidity and your own kind of wavering on that spectrum. Well, just to clarify, because I, I, I was quite interested in this idea that artists would make their audience feel stupid is that what you mean some of them do yeah. at some points there are bits where the works make you feel stupid like like this one you could say you felt stupid because you hadn't realized it was an artwork and you got slightly heated about it all the other other ones similarly because it's quite an interesting power relation to going on there for an audience to be made to feel stupid hmm. as as the artwork you know it's kind of i mean i quite often feel pretty stupid in galleries anyway just because the highfalutin label next to the work, or because I don't actually know anything about Titian, or do you know what I mean? I don't. Do I? Do I need? To, it's quite. It's actually exaggeration of what happens. Some people won't go in galleries, mm. will they? Because they are so scared of the. Well, I don't know what they're scared of really, but they do find it very hard to even enter the door. I think some of the works were really affected because they kind of called out that situation yes. of the highfalutin and the way that you can kind of go into things in a trusting manner, expect to be explained. So there's a gallery text which leads nowhere, um, which is a work by Kim Schoen. How, where, how does that actually work? Is, is that a text on the wall yeah, so or that's one a, you're given? It's a large vinyl text on the wall, so you kind of your eye glaze got answers up to it, expecting a little bit of explanation. Yeah, because people always stand, don't they? First thing they do is get explanation. Read, let's read the text they've given us to tell us what it's all about. Yeah, so that one's, uh, rather than being in any way related to the gallery, it kind of just sets off in its own kind of... Um, it's, it's, it starts to make sense and then it drifts off. It's a similar kind of glitch poetry as right. we're talking about. Um, uh, there's a work also in the show which is by uh, Kim Schoen, which is a video, um, which maybe I think is slightly more effective and it kind of allows you to sort of float this language and this authority and the way that it's filmed suggests that she's talking from a position of great knowledge but never leads anywhere this kind of empty speech which we were just talking about with Nathan. Because it sounds like a politician again, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think, again, the kind of um, the political nonsense. I say nothing but I say a lot of words. Yeah. So there's all these works which kind of have this performative aspect where you uh, can kind of put the headphones on or stand in a room and start to feel like you're going to be given knowledge and the disruption of that is interesting. It kind of makes you question your opinion. Oh, so, so, sort of in the way that you say that there's a power relationship. It's quite empowering to see someone make a fool of themselves or to someone to point to the silliness of the situation. So a lot of the works are playing with these ideas of identity. So, oh, so I see. So you mean by the by by the end of seeing the whole show, you might have actually you got the message, and the message actually. Is, Although it may have made you feel stupid on occasion, the message you've got is empowering. I think so. so I'm, I'm getting my head around this. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we, we uh, that notion of irony, the irony of stupidity, in that kind of, um, even in that word, duh, or how you want to say duh. So the saying the name That's of the That's the title of the show, duh, yeah. art and stupidity, yeah. Yeah, but would, do you say duh? Is it, it duh? Because it's 
D-U-G-H. Yeah, because some people mark. say it as a kind of ironic way of saying to somebody, you didn't know that? Yeah. Duh? So they've, they've used that question mark. So you kind of, even in trying to say the name of the show, you have to kind of embody a slightly stupid act. Yes. I think at all points they're, they're being very effective in, in kind of pushing their audience uh, to question how often they can make you feel stupid, but also to look at examples of performed stupidity. Um, I talk a little bit about the neuroses of the press release and trying to cover all bases of what stupidity can be. But a, a genuine press release. A genuine press release, <laughs> uh, but obviously one that even in the press release they um, put some lorem ipsum fake text block in as oh. a reading so it kind of drifts away into gibberish. They, they use all opportunities to kind of question... The situation of the gallery. Did they have bank fax backs? They did have. Yeah, because bank, bank used to send out. Well, you know, people used to send out everything by fax in the old days, and they used to fax them back, corrected, didn't they? Yeah. So they had a large wall display of these. Um, so I think, in some ways, it was slightly overwhelming to have so many different types of stupidity put towards you. Different types, Dif or just literally different different forms of the quantity of art. You mean or? the different quantity of art, but also the different ways of being stupid. As I say, there's right. a performance of stupidity. There's things that make you feel stupid. Uh, there's these different registers and tones of stupidity. So I mentioned a work uh, by Eric van Leyschout. I'm trying to say that. <laughs> um, where you go off into this little shed, a little porter cabin. Which is not in the gallery at all. Not in the gallery. So you cross the forum, which is a public square. Yeah. Uh, that night it was full of art people, but I'm sure often it's just full of um, teenagers hanging out. And some old ladies. And some old ladies, probably. Middle-aged ladies, sorry. Yeah. And um, when you get out to this porter cabin, you, you find yourself... On a very straight, you're out on a limb, as I say, uh, as I say in the review, with this man encountering all forms of very unpleasant stupidity. So there's kind of ignorance and there's racism, and he's travelling through rural Germany. This is a video within the shed. As this it were. is a video within the yes. uh, porticum. So you hit these kind of quite harsh tones of stupidity, which are quite disturbing. Yeah, could you say genuine stupidity? Genuine stupidity. As in, what I mean by that, I don't know. I mean, Thomas now start trading. Not sure what, what is what is it anymore. I don't know. Genuine stupidity it would be something that was very regretful I would say yeah so <laughs> I think I think the fact that even in the press release they say what exactly is stupidity anyway yeah. shows this kind of exhaustion of their subject matter everything being yeah. included all these avenues they're trying but to sometimes pursue. you found that a bit over overwhelming yeah as, as, a, as a visitor experience as I mean, I mean yeah it was over it was yeah I would say over, maybe overbearing in right. that way of trying to make sure that they're not um, Maybe maybe the curatorial approach, um, and this is Anna Gritz and Paul Clinton. Yes, we should have said that before, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> they've, uh, they've kind of pushed every angle in trying to, I think in, even in trying to show all the different types of stupidity, it's a, a demonstration of intelligence in that every avenue has been covered and maybe that's worked into it. Paul, you've got a question? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the politics of stupidity is really interesting that seems to be brought out by the Leishout piece and uh, we've had it in spades this week uh, with Donald Trump I think this is this idea of the danger of stupidity or the power of stupidity as well because he's not uh, he's not uh, he's bright not well he's not bright but he's not losing either <laughs> he's, no he's, he's winning of, you mean he's getting he's a lot gaining. of votes potentially yes to come so, so I think that's really interesting that the politics of stupidity and uh, uh, the, you know, the references to the Nazi era etc etc and then I suppose it brings Dadaism back into play that there's a kind of a left and right of the politics of stupidity is different ways of deploying stupidity to, for different effects. But the question I had was, uh, you, you use uh, an image by Sturtevant, uh, or, or Art Monthly used a Sturtevant image to uh, to illustrate the, the piece. And um, it sort of is it's one of those strange plays of Sturtevant's on another artist's work, and it sort of invokes uh, Paul McCarthy. Uh, and uh, it sort of led me into one of my historical relativist uh, thoughts again, um, in the sense that I can remember after sort of graduating as a mature student in the 90s and, and some friends of, of mine, a painter who's quite well known, um, Barry Rygate, um, uh, was writing a manifesto of stupidity then in the 90s. And, and that, my question is something to do with the... And I can remember Jake and Dinos Chapman um, sort of, of bringing a kind of belligerence 
into art that didn't really exist there, even among the other YBAs. And there's this kind of insistence on a sort of a non-conceptual, non-intellectual uh, framework. So I, I just wondered to what extent you thought the show was about now, or is it a historical review, or, or how long have we been making stupid art? <laughs> Not longer than we, we all imagined, probably. Um, yeah, so the exhibition uh, covers a really wide period of time in terms of um, it goes back to the 60s and right. uh, Andy Warhol is probably one of the earliest What do they examples. have of his? It's an interview actually so it's this kind of uh, he does this kind of blank feigned stupidity he's yes. kind of empty yeah. answers um, it's a particular interview where I think he said he kind of responds to quite a long set of questions with just yes or something with really really short answers yes. and the kind of uh that i'd say i'd say that's a form of belligerence it's a performance mm. it's a, a forming of identity that, i'm not playing the game yeah it rejects a, ter- a certain type of intellectualism yeah. or intellectual and um, in a specific interview um and starts to make its own kind of quite powerful assertion uh, of an independence from that kind of type of knowledge and a suggestion that there's this new knowledge developing, which is different. Um, uh, the Sturtevant piece is quite an aggressive. Is that a big video screen? It's a well, it's a big projection. Big, yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry. Um, so a very large and a very loud uh, rendition of Paul McCarthy. Uh, this kind of uh, repetition of his performance of. of a, a version of William de Kooning. William de Kooning. So it's quite layered, and because she does do other people's works, like Duchamp, or yeah. doesn't she? And so in this case, she's chosen to do Paul McCarthy, but he was doing someone before that. Yeah. So she enacts this violence, and then she very violently pushes it against these uh, com- images of consumerism, commercialism. So the picture in Art Monthly is of Hellman's real mayonnaise, and there's a part in the in the film of. Paul McCarthy performs squeezing mayonnaise with these giant rubber fingers so it connects and there's another moment where um, in in the there's lots of suggestions of sexuality that Paul McCarthy plays out and she, she puts in some real anatomy she puts someone, uh, a penis Oh actual? Yeah directly so you can you can kind of play against this person kind of using euthanism and alluding to things and being belligerent. And there being a sort of reality. And then next to it a reality in that. Yes, it's all video though, so it's not actually reality. Actual reality, no. But Nathan, are you still there? (laughs) (laughs) I think he may have gone. I think he may have gone. It's not a problem. We, 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 I just suddenly remember we had a guest somewhere else. But I, 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 did, I am still. Oh, you're here. still here. Think, Sorry. Yeah. Are you I okay? Turned on, um, I turned it on silent. Very good idea. Did, sure, did like, you? You don't have to. But did you want to ask a question? I hadn't forgotten you. I just—it's the eye-catching inability thing. Did you um, want? I, just an observation. Really. Yeah, please think, do. Please uh, do. It sounds like a really uh, brilliant uh, show and such a good idea uh, as a curatorial theme, and um, it's. You know, I'm sure it goes back much further than Andy Warhol, really, because it's like just the idea of the fool. Exactly. And, you know, almost like that as being almost the orig- the originator of, you know, anywhere performance art. So, you know, yeah. I thought that well, there were in warm I learned the other day that there were warm up acts in front of theatre, in front of plays. Mm. Well, they were actually, you know, some of them are brilliant comedians uh, and they were doing that was in the 16th century or something, you know, sort of, and I'm sure it goes further back than that. Listen, because of time and to be fair to Paul, I'm going to move us on to his feature. Um, yeah, well, Nathan's welcome to. Which chip, is called Lost. We, we, we'd like you to chip in on that as well, Nathan, if you're all right to stay on. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I mean, you can hear us all right, so ask away whenever you want. Just tap something. I don't know. But Paul, you've written a pe- feature called Lost. Yeah. Uh, which you, which we were, I think the subtitle is On Orientation Without Maps. Mm. But um, I don't know whether that was you or us, but um, can you just give us, like I asked Nathan, it's helpful if you could to try and sort of sum up a bit what the overall angle of the piece is. I mean, just the area that you're in. But I know that actually it goes from literature mm. to, uh, to to art, so it's not easy to do that. So Yeah, it may be a disoriented essay. Yes, possibly. That I wasn't saying that though. Uh, uh, and it appeared in the November issue. Yes, sorry, um, this is in the November issue, which is issue three nine one. Whereas everything the other else two pieces were in three nine three, which is December January issue. So this is November. Yes. 
but we we thought we'd cover it anyway. I think I think I'm, I think the article does does a lot of things as you suggested and works its way through a lot of, a lot of different media. Um, it starts off with this kind of um, passionate call for a reappraisal of a novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. Which you call a masterpiece. Yes, yes. Well, I, well, I kind of work my way through this sort of language of the masterpiece, um, um, but that's not really key to the piece. Uh, um, what I'm interested in about Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, badly received uh, 1995 novel, uh, the, the Unconsoled, is the uh, the way that, um, to my kind of amazement, he uh, managed to consistently sort of uh, entertain me and uh, engage me with the story, which nevertheless um, uh, kept taking me into sort of nonsensical or illogical uses of time and space and relationships. You mean you would be thinking as you were reading it, well, that couldn't possibly be yes, the yes. way it would be? Yeah. You know, like he can't just suddenly be walking in that street because he he wasn't there or yeah i'm still gushing about it and highly recommending it to anybody i meet i walk up into i meet people in the street and stuff but what's, what is it you it. love about that about that play play well that's a good question isn't it yeah um i suppose that uh, you know I'm, I'm a fan of literature as we all are i'm, I'm sure and uh, you, you you're kind of looking for something aren't you there's books that you can't swallow you can't finish or or, or books that, that keep you there and you read them in a day something about this quite thick i think it's about a 500 page novel um kept me constantly uh, engaged and, and i did ask that question quite early on you know what is what is this what is this device that, that he's, he's he's hooking me with and it was the the strange ability to surprise me and uh, make you kind of laugh out loud with the impossibility of what had just happened but with a certain kind of grace which which his writing is famous for i think this kind of slightness and uh, lightness of touch um, can, so you, can you give a specific example? I think it might be helpful if you could. Well, yeah, it's it's full of examples. I mean, if, you know, if he moves, um, he, he 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 could be having a conversation in a cafe with his son, uh, who previously you didn't think was his son, <laughs> and suddenly has become his son, uh, and then. Um, because he's got, to, he sort of leaves his son at a cafe table for a few minutes, uh, and then sort of finds himself uh, getting on a bus to travel um, somewhere that you know is going to be far too long because the son is still sitting there at the cafe, and then he ends up sort of travelling off into the mountains and meeting a, a pianist in a shed. Uh, all, all these kind so of the strange... son's long forgotten. Well, yes, in a way, but then it all kind of makes sense, and he kind of suddenly appears through, you know, comes through. A, he's in some some other building, and suddenly. A takes a shortcut through a, a kitchen no, and no, ends that, up back that, in the same space. That has space. to be the point where you remind me of Lewis Carroll, because, I mean, you did bring up Lewis Carroll. Yeah. And and, and, and particular particular one, um, uh, which was... Sorry, I'm just hardly looking to see what it well, was. Well, yeah, I, sort of I dig around for precedents in literature, uh, like, like like Alice in Wonderland, uh, and, and um, make references to Kafka... And uh, Deleuze and Deleuze's interest in 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 in, uh, in Lewis Carroll as well. Um, I was going to say as well. Um, can you hear me? Yes, yeah, yeah. we can definitely. Uh, I was going to say it sounds a lot like uh, sort of uh, mid-era Beckett as well. This kind of um, where these kind of there's these totally illogical ways of performing mm. your life that sort of just beholden some some other sort of logic that are like that's taking place beyond the ken of the reader or yeah, well, I think that I think that I think that that's the when I say I, I was questioning why I was enjoying this book so much, and and and, and as I say, there's a kind of entertainment that that you're being artfully uh, run around in a strange narrative. That there's a pleasure to that, but I think the point I work towards in the article in the end is that it's important for artists to remind us that life is like this <laughs> that, 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 that what we call strict common sense or a strict or a realism etc etc is is really probably another kind of delusion and that maybe in actually searching for a narrative with uh, a kind of accurate um, way of, of describing our experiences. You have to go into apparently nonsensical or illogical... Now you talk uh, about like the kilometre being weird, that the kilometre is actually well, yeah, a just, set length, because actually every experience of each kilometre... 
what yeah. might be very long well, yeah. one and another one might go really quick so exactly, why yeah. the same length yeah or the five minutes waiting for a bus compared with the five minutes rushing for an interview you're late for you know, the, yeah time the, time the, is the, very much a part of this isn't it yeah t- t- time and space kind of uh, novelists can describe uh, and maybe filmmakers etc as well you know perhaps things that are actually closer to uh, real experience by not adhering to uh, a scientific logic or, 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 or a kind of clearly rational uh, picture. Um, so, so, so that's basically what the article does. But there's something we've omitted, which is like bang in the middle of the article. There's a kind of uh, description of my contribution to uh, to uh, a symposium held at the ICA. And organised. Um, that was about involving the di- diagrams, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Run, it was. It was set up by Dean Kenning and, and David B- Burroughs and had lots of uh, people commenting on the idea that the artist um, is a diagramist, or that artworks uh, should pursue the paradigm of the diagram yeah. rather than perhaps what we call the drawing or the painting or the film. Just, or the just, novel. just again for st- sim- my sim- my understanding, the, the, the diagram. I mean, there are different ways in which you can do diagrams of the same thing. So, a di- you, you know, yeah. and you can do a, a map can be very different of the same place that if yeah. I did it and if you did it. So, is how does that link with the with their interest in the diagram? Well, one of the things that I stress in the in the essay is that I was I was asked to contribute to the diagramist's session as a bit of an outsider, I think, as somebody who is sceptical about it or... or uh, not, and you probably remain so, don't not you? Not privy to it. No, but I did find that I had an article... I had a chapter in my in my PhD which was, was relevant, so I used that and, and my interest in the unconsoled and, and put together uh, a paper out of, out of that. Um, and that was based around the the, the, the kind of a, a kind of tradition of using diagrams. For example, in art history, the famous uh, Alfred Barr diagram that shows how you know how cubism and abstract art uh, emerge. Uh, a famous diagra- diagram full of arrows and connecting lines. Which, in a way, the more you look at it, the less you can believe in it. In a way, you, 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 well, no, I mean, the diagram always is going to fail in a way, isn't it? Of 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 something like that because it will miss out. Something or somebody, yeah. I, I, I mean, maybe another classic example is the London Underground map, which which we have, which has to be inaccurate for us to be able to use to it. To understand, so effectively. It. yeah, that's a balance between uh, practicality and reality, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, so so um, so I, I kind of the article plays over these various uh, ideas, and it, it, it gets a, a bit philosophical in places, but. Uh, but uh, it references Nietzsche and Foucault. Nietzsche seems to turn up in all my articles somewhere. Um, but it reminds us of this, uh, the preface to The Order of Things, where, where Foucault says he sort of laughs out loud when he discovers this Borgesian um, kind of diagram, anyway, this, this Borgesian taxonomy that, that couldn't actually exist in logical, uh, logical space. And uh, I suppose what I'm saying there is that that moment of laughter in Foucault is something where I trace my own interest back to the impossibility of accurate diagrams or the uh, or, or the ways we might have to play with notions of time and space to get anywhere near what we really experience. What other what other artists did they mention? In, 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 I mean, this idea that there was a kind of like a flood of diagra- diagrammatists or whatever the word is. Oh well, I can just I mean the contributors included John Cousins and Andrew uh, Conio, uh, Amy Clark. Uh, Andy Sharp and David Osbalston, and uh, but are they people uh, who've made diagrams as art? Is that well? I mean, it was a very interesting day of presentations of artists and theorists uh, discussing the, the diagram. Some of them were very strictly about a Deleuzean, particularly Deleuzean idea of the diagram. Uh, um, but there were all kinds of. Uh, you takes I think you mentioned Simon Patterson's one, which is the tube map, where everything on the tube map is not the names of the places; it's philosophers. Or, yeah, in the article, or, I briefly run a, run through a few yeah, uh, just, art historical examples. Just trying to be, sort of bring the art into the thing. Mm. I mean, you mentioned Rauschenberg. You quote him um, as saying, "You always look hardest when you're lost." What was the relevance of that of that quote? It's one of those lovely sort of axioms that I heard years ago and I never forgot, but I was never quite sure exactly where it came from. No, 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 but what was the... I mean, but, it, but Rauschenberg it, is supposed to have said, you always look the hardest when you're lost. And uh, I, and I just always found it a kind of helpful uh, axiom for artists that, that, that we're not trying to uh, locate or clarify something 
that uh, our job isn't necessarily to make sense of the world. But uh, in the phrase, you look the hardest when you're, lo you're lost, it seems to me that what we're asked to do is look hard and, and, and uh, look the hardest in a way, um, look in ways that other people don't look, perhaps. Um, I think that's um, one of the things like that all of us really have been speaking about is that idea of like feeling lost, like in a space or in a work, you know, looking at an artwork or, you know, reading a text, mm. experience of like getting cut away from your normal sort of coherent route through it and being lost and having to look hard at like what it is you know, i think you're right yeah when the rug's taken under taken from under you or or, or your your yeah. or, your orientation or your uh, reassurances are broken like when the text is broken up you're you're right you're sort of delivered into something we could argue and say that, that it's more real <laughs> or more accurate that 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 space of yeah. uncertainty yeah definitely um i wondered if you'd um seen recently the uh, Alexander Galloway writing about diagrams or um, anyway visualizations, I think, um, and he he sort of makes the point that at the moment um, diagrams are kind of interesting because all data visualizations look the same. So it's like no matter what you're kind of doing uh, a diagram of, if you're use if you're visualizing data. You're essentially just producing a diagram of data visualization. I see. And, I see you know, yeah. they do kind of like all look the same, and you know, they they are sort of do have this kind of, you know, picture of the internet kind of just like a mesh. You know. Yeah. Well, well, we're using the, the historical relativist method again. I think that uh, I, I, one of the things I took from the diagram uh, uh, symposium was, was yeah, the suggestion that, that things that we called drawings or called paintings or called movies or called novels in the past could have also been called uh, diagrams, if you see. Right, yeah. <laughs> I think probably on that note we might wind the programme up. We've done well. Thanks for staying on the, on the, on the, on the phone so long, Nathan. It's a pleasure. And uh, we, pleasure. we'll all say goodbye to you, and hopefully, I haven't met you, I don't think, and I will hopefully do so in the future. Yeah. We'll have to get you down, actually, to, to the, the live station at some point, but you are live, you're just technologically somewhere else. <laughs> that suits me down. But we didn't that. have any glitches, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. So thanks very much, everybody. That's Paul O'Kane, who's talked on his feature, and Beth... I'm going to get your name wrong, your second name wrong, Beth Bramich. Pretty good, yeah. Sorry, it was forgetting <laughs> it rather than knowing how to say it. That was a glitch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm the only glitch there is usually, which is fine. As long as I don't mind, it doesn't matter. And thank you very much to all you lovely listeners out there. You can subscribe to Art Monthly easily online, and we do it direct debit, and it's the cheapest way of getting it, and I'd highly recommend you to do so if you get all these features to read. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>